Would you bow your hearts in prayer with me? Father, we are so humbled to be here and we are so grateful. And Lord, I pray that this morning as we turn to your word, that you would fix in our hearts the reality that Christ's work is finished. Because God, there are so many times when we, in a state of being overwhelmed by the guilt and shame of our own sin, there are so many times where we try to add to the work of Christ as though it was lacking. And Lord, we, we, we plainly confess that the work of Christ is finished and complete, and so many times we live like it's not. And so, Lord, help us. Lord, help us to match our behavior with our belief, at least our stated confession. In the words of one, one dad in the Gospels, Lord, we believe, would you help our unbelief? May we find our rest in you. We thank you that you've given us such a great salvation and pray that by your spirit you would help us as we look at it through your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, before I, I get going uh, into the message this morning, uh, I just want to let you know someone showed up early for work. I told him he didn't need to, but Adam Kester uh, and his wife Patty and their girls are here, and so we just want to... Uh, we know you start tomorrow, uh, but, but it's great to have you guys here. Uh, I, he's, a, he's a visitor today. Tomorrow he's a member uh, is, is how this works. So Adam, thanks for being here. Uh, welcome to Des Moines and welcome to Westchester. Now, as we turn to the text, I want you to think about a time that you began a major life journey. Uh, maybe it was uh, uh, academic endeavor, pursuing a degree. Maybe it was having young kids with the idea that, that maybe one day you would be an empty nester. Uh, what a glorious day that would be. Uh, maybe it was getting a mortgage or, or getting ready to start a new job with a nightmare of a boss. Uh, and um, <laughs> Good luck, buddy. Uh, boy. Um, I remember starting college, and I remember moving into college and going to orientation at Christ Chapel at Northwestern, and them, like, this, this room is filled with just naive freshmen and, and parents who are either terrified or relieved, right? And I remember someone at stage, someone on the stage saying, this is, your, your time here at Northwestern is going to be over before you know it. And I just thought, I, I don't believe that statement. Um, and I still stand by that conviction. Because over those four years, I had times of like, 
all-nighters because I had procrastinated of studying for tests that I had no idea what was going to be on them, reading Bible commentaries, trying to figure out what the heck the world of interlibrary loans was because the, the internet was still in some sort of, it wasn't in its infancy, but maybe in its toddler phase at that point as far as, academ, as, as, far as academics went. And, and it just felt like this is never going to end. And I remember suffering through syllabus shock when I realized the amount of reading and studying and the, the long papers that were ahead of me and the stuff I would have to do each week between now and the end of the semester or between now and when maybe one day I would finally graduate. And and while it eventually ended, the struggle was real. And I would see along the way maybe glimpses of the end, but I would also see times where even in my last year where it felt like it would never come to a close, that I wasn't really getting any closer to the finish. And sometimes our faith can feel that way. We get so caught up in this dailiness of life and the dailiness of our walk with Christ. We get up, okay, I'll open my devotional, I'll go to my reading plan, I'll pray the same things, and it feels like the ball really isn't moving any further down the road. And then the grind of life matches that. And we can sometimes get so consumed with our life that we become less consumed with the promises of God. And that creates in the life of a believer a real dissonance, a real struggle, um, where we feel like, man, am I, just, am I just hanging on? Am I praying to the ceiling? What is going on here? And when we think of the promises of God, whether it's that when we confess our sin that he's faithful to cleanse us of all unrighteousness, we, the promise that he'll never leave us, forsake us, the promise that, that our brother Warren read this morning that nothing separates us from the love of Christ, that all things work to the good of those who love him according to his promise, it, the, the, this promise that we are now part of a community of believers, whether maybe it's the blessings of the Beatitudes or the eventual return of Christ, it can feel as though these promises are forever away and we may grow tempted to think that they'll never come true. And we, we, we get to these moments of despair that are, that are really tough as believers. The book of Hebrews was written to believers who are struggling to have faith, struggling to endure, struggling to keep going. And, and really, the, the shape of the whole book of Hebrews is, look how great Jesus is, don't harden your hearts. Look how great Jesus is, don't walk away from him. Be encouraged, motivated by how great Jesus is, by what he's done. Look at others who have walked with the Lord, and then endure, work, hold fast, endure, work, hold fast, go through suffering, and look how great Jesus is. It, it intertwines a robust Christology with the struggle of walking with the Lord, believing His promises, even when those promises don't look like they're coming true. And in the middle of all that arc of, of Hebrews, we come to our text this morning. Roughly in the middle, 
there's a strong encouragement in the wake of realizing that some may walk away even after tasting the goodness of the Lord. We should all the more eagerly walk with and to Jesus because, of, because God's promises and Jesus' work are sure. And so let's start reading in chapter 6, verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, I know some of you came this week after the cliffhanger last week thinking, all right, let's learn about this Melchizedek. It's next week. You just got to wait. Keep you coming. The message here is to confidently cling to the hope you have in Christ. You can trust what God has promised through looking at God's past faithfulness. Confidently cling to the hope you have in Christ. You can trust what God has promised through looking at his past faithfulness. The, the Hebraist, he gives us a, a, a case study in our own spiritual lineage to start here. As we walk with the Lord, realizing what Christ has done for us and how we faithfully live in that reality, we need to look back at what God has done to the OG of walking in faith, Abraham. That God made this promise based on himself. God made a promise to Abraham. And since he had no one higher to make the promise to, and this is the, he's going back to the culture of covenant and the method of covenant, that you would make a promise based on, a, a, on an authority source higher than yourself. I swear by the queen. I swear by whoever it is I worship. And so we appeal based on who that person is, based on that authority, and God, having no one, did it by himself. And we see this in the text in Genesis, this, this scene of the covenant, that there's a, an animal that, that, that Abraham, has, it was Abram at the time, he slaughters, cuts in half, and God passed between the two paths of the animals twice. And this, this is a weird thing for us. We're like, that just seems kind of messy and gross and weren't there a lot of flies? Um, but this was a, a method of the covenant. And, and the imagery is, if I break this covenant, may what happened to that animal happen to me. And so God passes through it once on behalf of himself and then he passes through it again on behalf of Abraham. 
Because God knows that what Abraham is committing to is only something that God can ultimately keep. And what God is saying is, I'm going to keep my end and I'm going to keep your end. I am going, I am giving you my word and I am stating my will is what God is saying. That I'm giving you this word of a covenant and I'm stating my will that this covenant is going to come true no matter what. He swore by himself saying, I will bless you and I will multiply you. And then we have this this phrase that we see throughout Scripture. We see it in Genesis. We see it later on in Hebrews again, that Abraham believed God. And then what those other passages say is that it was credited to him as righteousness. But Abraham believed God. Here, Abraham, he's super old, no kids, and God says, you're going to have a kid. And Abraham goes, okay, I believe you, Lord. So he believed God right away. He had this immediate faith. But then he also had, and this is important for us to note as we look at Abram and as we look at how God's promises work, that he had an enduring faith. Not just an immediate faith, but an enduring faith. That he believed God when it took a long time. Thus Abraham, having patiently waited We flesh that out over the timeline of Genesis. It said Abraham waited 25 years for the birth of Isaac. Man, I struggle when my prayers don't get answered in a week. Abraham believed God. God has stated his word. He's given me his word. He stated his will. And he believes God. For 25 years. Now, Abraham did not always have a perfect practice of that faith. But God kept his word perfectly. It's also important to note that some of the promises God made to Abraham weren't fulfilled until long after Abraham died. Abraham had had some kids by the time... He died. But he did not have a multitude that outnumbered the stars of the sky. Now I want to point out, this is a lot more than a case study. Because it, it, it's easy, and I was drawn in this in my study of the text, to make this, that, that the author of Hebrews is giving us a case study on Abraham so that we can read this and be like, oh, that's how to walk with God. This isn't just a case study. We are, as we will read in just a few verses, heirs of this promise. This is our spiritual history. And it's contextually appropriate to draw out this conclusion, oh, I need to be like Abraham. I need to be obedient. I need to be faithful. And I need to wait patiently for God's promises because they are sure. But the emphasis here isn't on Abraham's example. The emphasis here is on the reliability and the sureness of God's promises. And this is just kind of a Bible reading tip for us. If we are making someone other than the Lord the main character of the text, we may need to read a little more carefully. God's promises are not contingent on our timeline. Nor was his promise to Abraham contingent on Abraham's timeline. 
They're based on something infinitely greater. His promises are based on who he is as God. They're based on his redemptive will, his stated word. Do you have an unbiblical expectation on the promises of God that you need to let go of? Are you holding a definition of what it means for God to move in your life that's not based in Scripture? Maybe an expectation of how God moves in your life that doesn't include suffering that doesn't include how God would use trials to sharpen you, to develop a deeper faith within you for his name's sake and not for your own. Abraham eventually had a son, but he did not live long enough to see all of his descendants who would outnumber the stars of the sky that he would eventually have and still has. He did not live long enough to see the offspring who would bless all the nations. But here we are, as those who have, through faith, become children of Abraham. And the same God who made this promise and covenant to Abraham has brought us into covenant relationship with him. And so we confidently cling to the hope we have in Christ, looking at God's past faithfulness, and looking at the power of his present promise. So he, he shifts from Abraham to us. He shifts from Abraham to the heirs of the promise, verse 17. Explaining a covenant that, that, people swear, that, that people swear by something higher than themselves. So God, desiring to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his, prom, of his purpose, he guaranteed it with his oath. So with two unchangeable things, and these two unchangeable things are his purpose and his oath. See, covenant, and we've lost this a little bit with our culture, but the intention of a covenant is this is a promise you cannot break. This is a promise that is unbreakable, that it is, and it is the final word and the final authority on the matter, that if something becomes a, a dispute that you could say, well, I made a covenant with them, They would say, oh, and that would be the final word. So God makes a covenant, an unbreakable promise to Abraham that all the nations will be blessed through this offspring. We see the results of this in Revelation as every tongue, tribe, and nation is worshiping the Lamb. And God has made a powerful, convincing, lasting covenant through the blood of Christ to us that our sins can be forgiven, that we can become children of God and co-heirs with Christ. And so God swore by himself with these two things, his purpose, the will of God, the redemptive will of God, that his heart throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, is to redeem a people, that he would be their God, that they will be his people and they will walk together. And God is always moving toward redemption while not excusing injustice. All of his judgment, all of his mercy always move in the direction of redeeming a people from all nations. God's promises move in this direction. 
and his oath. The God who it is impossible for him to lie. And so we look back, as we, as we take the oath of God seriously, let us look back at all the things that he has promised that have happened. And even seeing that in our own lives. There are times in my life where I just, I realize how much I have to learn because I, I'll, I'll pray for something or I'll read the word of God and something will happen and I'll be amazed. And then it's like the Holy Spirit like puts up a flannel graph and is like, see how simple this is? This is what I said would happen and then it happened. I'm like, oh yeah, like, I repented of my sin and things got better. I was humble instead of a proud jerk like I tend to be and things were better. I prayed and the power of God was at work. Oh, that's how that, like, God keeps his word. And we can look at this through promises like that a virgin would conceive and give birth. We can look at this through promises like, like the foretelling of Christ being pierced and that he was crucified and that by his wounds and by his stripes that we would be healed and that the Lord would lay on him the iniquity of us all so that when we come, we can have our sins forgiven and we can walk in newness of life and we see this. And it's so refreshing to have a God who keeps his word, that nothing can overturn the will and word of God. Where we have so many leaders who tell us one thing and do another. And that, that goes across all spectrums. I'm not trying to pick on one thing or another. But we don't have to worry about God reneging on his promises. He'll never pull back his promise. His promise is steadfast and secure. It's as sure as the rising and setting of the sun. And we need that sureness because, I mean, this life is just brutal. And all around us, people are trying to find different ways to cope with the brutality and brokenness of this world. And so many times, we see this over and over again, where whether it's either us ourselves or the people we love around us, they have brokenness in their world, and so they try and cover it up with what's essentially a broken Band-Aid. I'm overwhelmed with stress, so I'll drink myself to sleep at night. I'm lonely, so I'll find companionship through a website. I can't get ahead socially, so I'm going to start lying about everyone else to prop myself up. I can't seem to win in life, and so I'm going to like just shove my way to the front of the line, and I don't care who I step on. When you treat brokenness with brokenness, you only get more brokenness. We cannot fix our marriages with the methods of the world. We cannot fix our emptiness by throwing in a whole bunch more emptiness. We cannot fix our loneliness through some sort of like pseudo-friendship that comes via social media. 
But what we see in our world is a bunch of people who try to fix their brokenness with brokenness and they're running everywhere. And we do the same thing. And we are running and running and running and we seem to have nowhere to go. And there's this image at the end of verse 18. And this was a great image for salvation. This is a humbling thing for us for salvation. That we who have fled for refuge have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hopes set before us. And it's this idea that we who are believers, like everyone in the world is running somewhere for refuge, and we've run to the promises of God through Christ to find our refuge in Him, our shelter. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a plea of, I can't do this on my own. I, I absolutely need God's provision. I absolutely need God's protection. To contradict Tom Petty, you do need to live like a refugee. You need to flee to Christ as your only hope. And we have, like just all over the news, just these horrible images of people fleeing Ukraine for refuge. And I want you to think about your salvation that way. That this world will only kill you. And we as Christians have fled to Christ. Christ, you offer a protection that no one else does. The hope of Christ offers a protection that can't be found anywhere else. And so I'm going to, and, and we have this, and this is biblical language, this hold fast. And it's not something we always understand. It's the same language as father shall, a, a man shall leave his father and mother and cling, cleave to his wife. And it's this idea of I am never letting go. Nothing is, I am going to hold on to this because my life depends on it. Not as if my life depends on it, but because my life depends on it. I am holding on to the promises of Christ. And I can confidently cling to this hope in Christ because, there, because of the immovable security of Christ. And so to drive home this point, the author takes us from this idea of fleeing for refuge to the idea of an anchor that we have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. And this is so appropriate. When we look at the, the life of a believer, that this world is constantly changing. Paul warns Timothy to not be not be tossed about by the, by the waves of false doctrine or controversies and the winds of them, but to stay steadfast. And as Christians, as we face controversies and trends and persecutions and trials and even our own waywardness, Christ is the anchor. And, his, and the anchor of Christ protects us both in the storm and in the calm. I was, uh, last fall, as we were getting ready for the, the Charles Simeon Trust workshop, uh, the, the table group leaders were discussing all the passages, and we came to this passage. And uh, a pastor in our district named James Rowland told us about a time he was, he was vacationing up in the Great Lakes, and they, were, they, were, they had a sailboat. And they were back in a bay, and they were, they were sleeping on the boat, 
and a storm came up. And a storm like on like a, a, an Iowa-sized lake is a big deal. And then you put it on the Great Lake, and it's a really big deal. And he said it was absolutely terrifying. And in that storm, there was all kinds of technology on the boat. GPS, there was some weather stuff, there was the motor, there were the sails, there was all this stuff. The only piece of technology that mattered during that storm was the anchor. And without that anchor, their boat would have been tossed about, crashing into other boats, probably damaging those, damaging their own boat, potentially sinking, or taking them out to who knows where. The only thing that mattered in that storm was an anchor that kept them right where they were. And in the storms of life, the only thing that matters is that Christ doesn't move. He is unchangeable. I have the opportunity to, to, to work with young couples as they're getting ready to get married. And one thing I'll tell them is I say, look, everything in your life between now, let's say, let's say God gives you 60 years of marriage. You're married into your 80s, one of you goes to be with the Lord. In those 60 years of marriage, everything about you is going to change. Everything about your marriage is going to change multiple times over. And one thing will never change, and that's the Lord. Hold on to the anchor through every storm. But then the calm is a problem. A couple weeks ago, we had our district conference, and we had a speaker in named Trevin Wax. And he talked about being on the beach. And he said, the land doesn't move, but the water does. He said, it's a nice day. You're at the beach. And he, when he talks about beach, he doesn't talk about Sailorville. He talks about salt water. And in your nice day at the beach, and you, you set up your, your, your little umbrella and your picnic basket and your chairs, and you go out in the water straight in front of it, and you're playing and you're having a good time. And before you know it, you're 50 yards down the beach, but the land didn't move. And you can be on the water on a calm day, and the breeze and currents that you don't know are there are going to take you away from where you want to be. Have your anchor in Christ, because when we are relaxed, we will drift. Do not let go of Christ. And do you notice the emphasis on hope here? In verse 18, to hold fast to the hope. In verse 19, we have the sure anchor, the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. A Dutch theologian says that hope is the basis for perseverance and endurance in times of trial. And it's through holding fast to that certain hope that we would avoid any sort of either spiritual drift or spiritual paralysis. You see, in the context here, leading up to this passage, right after the warning of waywardness, in verse 11 and 12 of chapter 6, we have, we desire that each one of you show this, this earnestness and have full assurance of hope to the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises, that we would not be sluggish in our faith, that our sureness of hope moves us. And here's the sureness of hope we have, that Jesus, this, the inner place of the curtain, our hope is entered in there where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. If you're someone who loves underlining the Bible, underline those two words, has gone, and embrace the glorious past tense of this. Jesus has gone there on your behalf. 
as a forerunner. But he has gone. This isn't something Jesus has to do over and over. He went there on your behalf and it's done. It is finished. The sacrifice has been offered. The forgiveness is granted. New life is possible. It is finished. He has gone as a forerunner, not for himself, but on our behalf, to the Holy of Holies to present a sacrifice for our sins. And all these promises can feel so far away. But let us be zealous for Christ, knowing what lies ahead and that his promises are sure. Last summer, my family and I embarked on a road trip out to Utah to take in some national parks. And one of them we went to was Bryce Canyon. Bryce Canyon National Park is one of the coolest things I've ever seen. And we heard, we had, we had some friends who had been out there. And so we'd talk to our friends and they'd, they'd talk to us about the colors. They'd talk to us. About, I mean, there's just nothing out there but a canyon, just about. Uh, a canyon and a place to get ice cream, that's about it. And they would talk to us about the canyon, about what to expect, about you know, even different routes to take driving out there. And in that part of Utah, you don't think of there being multiple routes, but surprise, there are. And so we drove, we were really looking forward to this. We drove a day and another day, stayed at some places, saw some cool things. And then we had another five hour drive with kids. <laughs> I love them. And it just felt like we were never going to get there. But then every now and then we'd see a glimpse of what the landscape in southern Utah could be. And it'd go from like, we'd, we'd just be driving through what looked like just really plain desert. And all of a sudden there'd be a forest. It's like, oh, where'd that? I mean, like across the street from a desert, there's a forest. And then across the street is another canyon. Like, oh, and then you'd see some rocks that are these like bright oranges and pinks. Like maybe we're almost there. And then it would go back to desert. And it just felt like we're never going to get there. And we'd get glimpses of what this scenery could be, all while never seeing a single hoodoo. And then we get to the edge of the national park, and it just looks like high elevation desert. And we drive into the park, and there's a few trees, and there's some mule deer and prairie dogs. And then we're driving up to a parking lot that's right next to the canyon, and it's still just trees and grass. How can this be? And then we walk a little ways, and there's a canyon. Most beautiful canyon I've ever seen. It was unbelievable. It was just as promised, hoodoos and all, but better. Because we weren't looking at a picture of it. We weren't doing Google images of Bryce Canyon. We got to see, we got to hike, we touched the rock walls for ourselves. I know it takes a while in the Christian life. And sometimes the glimpses of glory and the glimpses of the wholeness that Christ offers us are few and far between. But I want to tell you something. 
and this goes back to the fact that Christ has gone there, what we feel like we're waiting for is already accomplished. Isn't that something? What we feel like we're waiting for is done, and it's been done for a long time. Christ has gone as a forerunner on your behalf. He went to the Holy of Holies to serve you, and as a forerunner, he went there knowing that one day he's going to bring you into that. We see what God has done with our spiritual forefathers. How they waited and waited and waited. And in the end, God was faithful every single time. Endure, strive, and imitate them. But most importantly, hold fast to this anchor of Christ. Knowing that His work is done. We have too great a Savior not to push for what He has made possible for us. Let's pray. Oh, great God, You sent Your own Son while we were still sinners. Your Son died for us on a cross while we were still sinners. And, he, it, and Jesus, You finished it. Lord, I pray that you would help me in all the times that I don't live in the completeness of the work of Christ. Help me, Lord. Help us to hold fast to that anchor, to continually be reminded that you are our refuge. And help us to not be sluggish, but to press on towards the goal. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>